for May 21st, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 516. That indeed was cold. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. We overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together and talking about the things that we watch, the things that we listen to, the things that we read, talking about our experience in this life, pop culture, uh, and beyond. I'm Matt Rather. I am here with my good friends, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very well. And Mr. Mark Lee. Hello. 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 All right. So, guys, we, we uh, all saw the Deadpool movie, and uh, we hated it. It was terrible. And uh, we, did, we just were not going to – in protest, we're going to do a podcast about, you know, 17th century French literature. Take it away, Pete. No, I'm well, kidding. Just, oh, what? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We uh, we did not get a chance to see Deadpool before the time uh, that we had to record this podcast. In fact, um, we uh, this is a pre-tape, uh, and we will circle back to talk about Deadpool uh, later on in the summer, though certainly not next week, because we will have our traditional Memorial Day-themed podcast where we uh, do a, a sort of extended uh, extended soliloquies on our favorite memories. Um, <laughs> that's almost certainly what next week's show is going to be about. Uh, so in, in, in the meantime, in order, to honor, in order to honor Deadpool, I mean, you know, we come, we come to praise Deadpool, not to bury it. Uh, since since we haven't been able to see the movie yet, we wanted to sort of honor what we assume will be some of the themes of Deadpool and talk a little bit about uh, metatextuality and talk a little bit about breaking the fourth wall. In fact, my telling you that this is uh, a pre-tape um, is an example of breaking the fourth wall because uh, well, or is it though, or is it, or is it? Yeah, Mark, what's wrong with that idea? Because there's no construct of uh, three walls or four walls, for that matter, uh, uh, in the podcast to break. Um, we are not presenting this as a fictional uh, imagined space, right? We're just we, this is what what it is. Like we acknowledge that there's an audience, and we talk to you, I mean, the audience, so we don't have yeah. a fiction to uphold. I mean, what do you? I, I mean, I appreciate that you guys are speaking so grandly, but I'm just really enjoying this brunch with the two of you, and appreciate that we can have this kind of conversation in your apartment, Matt. And so, uh, I, I don't know who you're talking to about all this highfalutin stuff. I appreciate it, but these eggs are just delicious, and I know that you got the yolks just right, right there in the middle. So, uh, so thank you very much. So, yeah, what were you? you, you this were is probably like about- as we we probably all are actually like in real life when this episode goes out or is is fixing to go out right like we probably are all having brunch together right at the at the moment so that's not a uh you know that's uh sort of a, a weird thing i don't i mean i don't know i feel like there are certain aspects i think there are certain performative acts, aspects to podcasts and to what they are like the idea of a conversation right like um the idea that like hey we're sitting down talking into microphones and skype in order to do in order to do a thing our our thing takes the form of a conversation and and our thing actually generally is a conversation a genuine conversation and uh we don't 
pre-plan. And we work with, um, you know, we work with live ammo. We work with big ideas live and try to think our way through them. And I, I sometimes feel like, uh, you know, I sometimes feel a, a little inferiority complex about sort of slicker podcasts that have a more um, practiced panel show thing. I think it's partly our personalities, but partly the fact that, like, we're actually open to the unknown happening um, on the show, and some of the sometimes when we sort of stutter or don't entirely stick the landing, uh, that's because we're we're actually doing it rather than like regurgitating sound bites that we've that we've outlined before. So there actually is a uh, an aspect of of real conversational back and forthness, but but I but there's also the sense in which like this is not. I don't think the three of us would be on a weekly phone call with one another for ten years plus. Right. Like uh, every week for an hour or more. Um, I'm just not sure much as I love you guys. I'm not sure that that would happen without this sort of construct of the podcast and the idea that like, you know, that that's something that's that's sort of left out. But that's not I mean, a little bit. I thought you were going to distinguish between kind of going behind the scenes and uh, and breaking the fourth wall, which I think are probably two different um, two different sort of metatextual things but it, it but uh your contention anyway is that that we don't don't have a fourth wall i don't know pete what do you what do you think about what do you think about this and as a quick follow-up uh are you enjoying your eggs and would you like more coffee uh, i would love some more coffee thank you so just to slow this down and step back a second so here i am sitting with you guys right and we're having a conversation and sure maybe we might not have had this conversation if we didn't have this kind of occasion for it which is great but i'm looking around this room and and i see that okay there are actually six walls right there's like the top and then there's the bottom (laughs) and then there's like the four that go around and some of them kind of snake in and out but but what you're saying right in terms of the fourth wall is that because you and i and mark are all having this conversation in this room there's there's nobody who's watching us and if we were having brunch like al fresco where there would only be one wall Maybe a wall and like a sort of half wall, three half walls, like sort of a waist high barrier. So I guess that would amount to one wall and a half. So that would be two and a half walls. If there's like a hedge, if if there's like a plant wall, what is that? Does that count as something? But in those kinds of situations, you're saying that there would be people watching us. And then because there would be people watching us, we would act differently than we would if we were just talking amongst ourselves in this room like we are right now. Right. Like, so thank you so much. Please, if you want to put. Put don't put three in. This isn't a Dunkin' Donuts. We can do two sugars. It's just fine. Uh, thank you, though. I appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's the idea of like if someone were to see us, you know, in a you know sitting on a park bench having this kind of like a long park bench, and that's maybe like a quarter of a wall having this kind of conversation, they would have to know that we were kind of responding to the fact that they're watching us, and then they would kind of know that what they're watching is like inauthentic, is the sense right? So I would say that like. So if we're talking about what the fourth wall would lend something like this, it's the idea that if somebody if there were like recording devices planted in this room with us right now, that as we're eating brunch and somebody were listening to what we're saying, there's the idea that they would be listening to something that isn't being altered or shifted by the presence of the watcher. And that would give them a certain kind of like voyeuristic satisfaction and also a sense that what they're listening to is is authentic and, and maybe even reaches sort of into the human condition in a more honest way than something that was like, you know, in the open and we were like saying, hey, everybody, boys and girls, you know, come join us in, in New York City and all this other stuff. If, if we were saying something like that out in public, right, uh, it would be it would be different. So so like I'm just putting that down as a distinction between what happens when you have four walls 
versus when you don't. Uh, is, and, and I guess what we're saying is, OK, is our conversation by virtue of the fact that we have it amongst ourselves here? Uh, is, it, is it more of a kind of like fourth wall conversation or is it that we're always performing so much when we get together for these conversations? Right. We're always performing so much that we can't help but act as if somebody is listening or watching. Um, you know what it makes me wonder is it makes me wonder if the fourth wall is even relevant anymore if everybody's posting everything that they're doing on like Instagram and Facebook, right? It's, it's like it's not it's not re- realistic anymore to have a fourth wall in like a stage performance. Yeah, well, I suppose right, exactly. I suppose every selfie breaks the fourth wall. Yeah, exactly. Because every selfie is a window, so you have to chip out like point two walls. Um, <laughs> if it's up high, it's like a skylight, right? Uh, <laughs> well, of course it's up high. You do the you're acting differently because somebody is watching you. You do the high right? angle. You do the high angle selfie. Right? I'm, I'm actually like I'm turning. Can you hear the difference in the audio? Like I'm turning my face away from my microphone be, and looking up at the ceiling where I'm holding my phone. Uh, yeah. Where I'm no, holding I'm- my phone up. Totally MySpace style, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Don't face that, man. You know what? I'm, I'm yeah. gonna. Maybe I'll use this. Maybe I'll use this as the show art for this particular show. I'm gonna. I'm gonna totally break the fourth wall, guys, and I'm gonna take a selfie. What? Right now. I uh, thought this was private. I'm not wearing any pants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no. wearing leggings. They're Pete, just I'll, not pants. I'll cro- I, I draw the line. <laughs> I'll crop you out of the frame, Pete. Appreciate it. You know, we're, we're, on the note, broad note of performativity of this podcast, and we should probably shift gears and talk about movies and stuff in a little bit, rather than just continue to gaze into the navel of the navel of the navel. But it, it, as much fun as this is. But um, if you were to just kind of like, truly eavesdrop on our private conversation with the three of us, just kind of hanging out and shooting the breeze, it's not that much different. <laughs> now, it is absolutely performative, and this is a funhouse mirror uh, exaggerated version of the way that we uh, uh, shuck and duck jive with each other. But we have literally been doing this since the late 90s, um, and it is a continuation of that performative uh, conversation and, and uh, for lack of a better word, some one-usmanship that we yes, have with each other. We, we overthink because we've never learned to say I love you. so so here's the sort of weird cycle right it's that people would watch would watch something that's being performed and then those people would react to the fact that they're being watched by sort of changing and then people be like oh i don't want to watch that i want to watch the thing that isn't being altered because i'm watching it and so then you take people who are being watched and are acting as if they're being watched and then we change that to make them act like they're not being watched, which is in turn like an approach. It's sort of an inauthenticity that is put in as a simulacrum of an authenticity. It's like, well, if I watch people and they act like they're being watched, then that's not real, (laughs) even though that's what's happening. And so then it's like, okay, if people then we want people to sort of artificially act like they're not being watched. And that way I can see something that's more real. But then that's also sort of artificial. And now we're at the point where. Uh, the 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 people who are acting as if they are not being watched are not even acting as people who are not in a show are acting. Um, and, and so the question then is like, OK, well, what are the things that we value? And I guess we could take it to examples now, because because I think with Deadpool in particular, what you, you often deal with is a character who feels more authentic and more honest than the superhero characters who are, you know, behind that fourth wall, in the sense that what they're ha- even if even if it's under a, a laser dome rather than an actual set of walls, uh, or inside of a spaceship, or even out in the open, where but the wall, the fourth wall is the screen, right? And the idea that they can't 
tell that we're watching them from behind the screen and they're acting like we're not watching them. When it, but what they're doing is such a huge spectacle that they can't help it. And so maybe Deadpool feels more authentic than somebody like, you know, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange. I pick the most grounded and authentic of the Avengers, right, as a comparison. <laughs> um, because he's acting as if he's not a crazy wizard. Although he is kind of acting like he's a crazy wizard because there's other aspects of performativity. But, like, the loss of authenticity that's perceived that kind of was demanded the fourth wall going up in, what, the 19th century? Is that accurate to say, Matt? Because like, it's not like people yeah, figured that, out how to break the fourth wall. Right. No, no. I think, that, I think that it's – yeah, it's, it's actually – it's really interesting, right? Because like, it didn't – it wasn't a part of theater practice for the yeah. longest time. You know? um, I thought so, we were going to talk about French theater in the 60s. I was, <laughs> I was up on my racine and, my, and ready to go to town. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, really, I was really like cracking the spine on my copy of Fetre or yeah. – uh, <laughs> you know, or talk, talk about Moliere, talk about like uh, La Fesche or something like, but no, the, the, um, right. Like it's, it's, uh, with the, this sort of continental European realism, you know, uh, and I'm thinking of like, um, uh, Ibsen, right. Uh, the idea that, that sort of, we're kind of turning our eyes on, we're, we're sort of turning our eyes on, on actual human behavior. And there's kind of like a social dimension to it. There's a kind of social critique, social criticism, uh, dimension to it. Um, but the idea that like, in order, in order to be serious, it can't be, um, in order to be serious, it can't be subject to the whims of an audience. You know, uh, I remember I remember seeing Hamlet at uh, the at the Shakespeare's Globe Theater in the South Bank in London. Mark Rylance was playing Hamlet, uh, and he was. Uh, brilliant like he, he speaks shakespearean verse with such naturalness and not in like a weird way where where it's like uh where you kind of marlon brando everything and sort of mumble and insert awkward pauses at inappropriate moments and like that makes it naturalistic somehow no it's just like the he's right there with the idea and the the words just sort of come as though he's having a chat and that's like that's the most natural language in in the world and so he's standing down center you know on the big thrust uh sort of apron of the the um the stage that's set up in the the kind of wooden o uh and he is doing the to be or not to be soliloquy from hamlet and he uh he gets to the line who who would fartles bear um to grunt you know uh who who would bear who would bear uh strain you know who would bear who would sort of bear um burden and uh a baby cries like there's just this this piercing baby shriek right at that moment and he looks up like wide-eyed surprised at you know this sound and he looks over to the sound of the baby and he says i who would bear it you know and uh wow nice oh wow yeah i know right and it's so like and it was thrilling you know and it's because he was so it's because he was there not in some weird uh, bs you know stanislavsky construct of his own you know of like what the art is uh of what the quote-unquote capital a art is he was actually there really in the moment in the actual experience with us which was he was an actor doing Hamlet on stage, like, you know, doing, doing this play. And there's, you know, and the, the, the profundity, the kind of admirable artistic qualities of the play don't 
depend on everybody pretending that we're actually doing something else than what we're actually uh, than what we're actually doing. Now he's he's a brilliant genius, and it's not totally fair to hold everyone to that particular standard. But like I I always found I've I've more or less left professional acting for the moment behind. But like I always found it hard. Like one reason I was never good at it <laughs> in a certain you know, from a certain point of view is I could never really, never really leave the audience outside, you know, and a lot of that is self-consciousness and has to do with who I am and what my own hangups are and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, to a certain extent at times it held me back. And so I kind of fought with it and like struggled to, to move beyond it. But like, I, I never saw, I never really saw the point, right? It seemed like, you know, everyone talks about the audience. Oh, uh, you know, inside the actor's studio BS, right? Oh, the audience is a character. Oh, the audience is a character. So, like, play with them. Like, actually be, you know, uh, be present with them. And you can kind of do, you can sort of do things to sort of deliver, to get across to them and to sort of incorporate them in, in ways that are not at all in this kind of code of theatrical realism, but that that... I don't know that that seemed to kind of do the job of the theater, which is communion, right? Uh, a little more, uh, a little more profoundly and a little more effectively than than you could do without it. I don't know. Sorry, Pete, you probably didn't mean to launch me off on, oh, uh, on a tangent like it. that. I have another. An- I have an anecdote also, uh, which is a little bit lower class. But it's from February of 2000, and I don't know if you ever got, you guys ever saw this, but there is a Robert Smigel Saturday Night Live cartoon <laughs> back when they did the Saturday TV Funhouse sketches on Saturday Night Live where Mr. T decides that he wants to do something more serious with his career, and he decides to play Torvald Helmer in a, a production <laughs> of A Doll's House. <laughs> and all the children end up getting dressed up and going on stage with him and uh, and playing out and playing in the doll's house. So, because when you had mentioned, I pity the fool who eats his sweets from the sweet shop. <laughs> um, so there's a lot going on in the context of the conversation we're currently having. There's a lot going on in this Robert Smigel sketch about Mr. <laughs> T. So we had mentioned that European continental theater goes through a shift in what the 17, the 16, 17 into the 1800s, more this, more the 17 into the 1800s, I guess is when it, and it really kicks into gear in the 1800s into the early 20th century. And it comes to America in like the mid 20th century or early 20th century, because we take forever to pick things up from the rest of the world. But uh, this idea of like, okay, before when people did plays, there was a sense that you were kind of professing to the audience. There was a communion. There was this sort of ancient religious tradition that was associated with it that got updated to sort of modern religious roles, plays that were serious, that would get interrupted by clowns that would come out and like play to the audience. The audience would sometimes sit on the stage. Like there's different sort of setups plays would happen in people's houses uh but at this at a certain aspect you get to the point where theater is happening on a stage that's been designed with that proscenium arch where it's supposed to be more real because you're watching people who aren't being watched and you're sort of seeing the authenticity of their psychological journey which of course modern neurology might say is not actually what's happening but it was a fiction of the time and so you have mr t right who he 
he is so beefy he can't help but smash through the fourth wall. Mr. T, I think, is like a quint. And we've talked about Mr. T before. We've even celebrated his birthday. Uh, remember Mr. T Party Day? That was a great time. I'm overthinking it when we celebrated Mr. T's birthday with a series of political protests. Uh, but um, Mr. T talks to children about how they should stay in school and don't do drugs and be healthy and respect themselves. But he's not just talking to the children that are near him. He's talking to the children also who are watching. And sometimes he does this by pointing directly at the camera and at the children who are watching. But sometimes it's by this sort of proxy extension where, like, the actual fourth wall is like a cylinder that's only around Mr. T. Like, anytime Mr. T talks to anybody in anything, he's breaking the fourth wall. Uh, you know, fool is somebody who exists outside of fiction in reality is, I think, the idea. Like, I, I pity this fool. I pity that fool. You should do this. You should do that. He's always sort of talking generally to other people. And the idea that uh, Mr. T needs to, like, up his game by going behind a fourth wall and pretending to be somebody who's enacting an entirely fictional experience that has no relation to the quote-unquote real world in terms not not in terms of comparison but in terms of like expository argument like like mr t is not telling you to do anything if he's playing torvald helmer whereas like even if he's playing ba baracus yes it's behind the fourth wall in the a team a little bit but the performativity of it is just so out there uh, it's just interesting to consider that Mr. T talking to children about not doing drugs is a more sophisticated and I think more traditional theatrical act than Mr. T dressing up like Torvald Helmer and uh, dressing up like him performing Torvald Helmer in a doll's house. And I think part of what they're poking fun at is this is kind of a step down rather than a step up <laughs> for Mr. T. So, <laughs> I mean, that's my take anyway. I, maybe they were just doing the juxtaposition of high class and low class and also talking about race at the same time. But this is in August Wilson. This is... Uh, <laughs> this is <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, by, no, by the way, I'm loving, I'm loving these... Bl- is it Blini? Blini? How do you, how do you say it? Yeah, the, uh, Blini. I mean, I... I just say like mini pancakes, you know, but like yeah, silver yeah, dollar yeah. pancakes. But I thought, you know, it was I, it was good for you to come over, and you you came all this way. You flew the twenty five hundred miles from from Boston oh. to. Uh, I mean, not with your arms. Yeah. I'm not ridiculous. In one in one undivided real time shot, not even in a montage. Right. It took me a long time to get here. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, we'll, it was we'll, uh, real that way. We're gonna speed it up as a time lapse for the re- like you know requiem for a dream style, but uh, you know Ellen Burstyn really did all of that cleaning just like you really flew across the country so i thought it would be nice and i'd get you some caviar some blini sour cream you know the whole all the all the fixings for our uh for our fancy brunch here can i pour you another mimosa Oh, yeah, sure. And if Casey Affleck shows up, feel free to bring out a pie and we'll just spend like 18 minutes eating it. Oh, you can yeah. be a ghost. Right? <laughs> that, was it a pie or a cake? I don't remember <laughs> in that movie. Oh, man. There's actually there's a really good eating an omelet scene in uh, Big Night, you know? Ooh, I really want to watch Big Night because it's in Tucci Gang. Which is great. You guys like Tucci Gang? What is Tucci that? Gang, Tucci Gang, Ooh, Tucci what? Gang. Okay. So I, I guess I'm talking about Saturday Night Live sketches as well, which are always not really behind a fourth wall because they're cracking up and laughing at the fact that they're performing. But a few, like a month ago so, or so, uh, Saturday Night Live did a parody of SoundCloud rapper sensation Lil Pump. 
who has a song called Gucci Gang, which is almost entirely refrain. You know, Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang. He says it over and over again. It's sort of like the song Versace. Um, and and Pete Davidson dressed up in full Lil Pump regalia and did Tucci Gang. And Sam Rockwell is on it breakdancing, dressed up as Stanley Tucci. And he sings about Stanley Tucci and how Stanley Tucci is awesome and underappreciated. And it's a very catchy song. And I listen to it on average about once a day. And has to sing <laughs> out. Um, and and one of the things he talks about is uh, he cites that he's what he's uh, uh, he's the he's in Transformers the last night, Beauty and the Beast in Spotlight, writer and director of Big Night, Tucci Gang, Tucci Gang, Tucci Gang. And so I, since I've been hearing that song, I've really wanted to watch Big Night, which is I guess a movie that Stanley Tucci wrote and directed about uh, brothers opening an Italian restaurant that is supposed to be very good. Uh, I mean, Matt is go- is Big Night good? Yeah. I guess is my first question. And then is Big Night relevant is my second question, the conversation we're having right now. Not not really. Only only in that <laughs> it, it contains an omelet eating an omelet eating okay. scene. I, I actually don't even want to to spoil anything uh about Big Night, but you should you should watch it. You should definitely okay. watch it. It's maybe we'll podcast about it at some point. So well it's so well acted. Um it's so well, it actually. A fourth wall? Is there a fourth wall? Yeah, it is. It's a, it is a traditional. Yeah. I mean, and this is this is the thing. Maybe why Deadpool is so refreshing. Um, like uh, the the dramaturgy of TV and movies. Uh, TV maybe a little less so. There's there's a little more room for formal experimentation these days in television. But the dramaturgy of TV and movies is like very 19th century is very almost is so old fashioned as to be almost retrograde. Right. And like really doesn't capitalize really chooses not to capitalize on, on a lot of the, the tools. And I think that there's a, a a lot of the tools of storytelling that it could avail itself of if it wanted to, I think there are a couple of of reasons embedded in the medium for that, why it's harder to quote unquote, break the fourth wall in, uh, in a film, like because the film is, is recorded and it's done the same way every time, you know, uh, unless it's Clue and the different the different endings are released in different parts of the the theaters or something like that in different theaters uh, across the country, um, they only showed one ending in the theatrical release, but they showed different ones at every place so that you could uh, uh, so that you and your friend wouldn't necessarily have seen the same the same ending. They and then they like appended all three uh, in the the home video release. So. So like it's it's hard to do because it's it's obviously it's very obviously artificial and there's this whole you know edifice of artifice. Um, the other thing is that like you know in in here in late capitalism the function of of uh, large scale corporate entertainment is to to anesthetize you. So like calling attention to its constructedness is something that it really it really wants to downplay because it just wants to kind of barrage you with sensation, pummel you with with sound and and uh, and and sights and and you know uh, leave, leave a kind of drooling slack-jawed uh automaton jesus re- christ re- re- <laughs> whoa you like television <laughs> ready to uh ready to participate in you know to to play a part as your cog in the the global economy take, so take the glasses take the glasses off <laughs> uh, all you're seeing is sleep and obey and that's no fun right <laughs> i think i actually want to see dr strange manipulate time and space in very mystical and magical ways um it, well, what I, I i say that because i kind of want to bring us back to the uh, question asked earlier and connect that to uh, your very bleak read <laughs> of, uh, of why uh, movies don't break the fourth wall more often, right? Like, is Deadpool 
a more authentic expression of the superhero or is Doctor Strange or maybe even a more pedestrian example, Captain America? Um, what is the more authentic uh, <laughs> display of, of the superhero movie? Um, to which I would respond uh, as a bit of a cop out. Perhaps like, there are different definitions of authenticity and you uh, and there are, there's more than enough room to, 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 to play with both of those and be satisfied for both definitions. But um, to, to touch uh, specifically on that uh, very bleak reading you were talking about, Matt, um, are you kind of saying that like Marvel, um, because it is out to anesthetize the population with its um, uh, easy to digest uh, escapist fantasies of superhero movies, like they're not going to undermine their overall project by putting out something like Deadpool, who breaks the fourth wall and so savagely undermines their myth making well look if if the core if, if the there's a market for anti-capitalist rhetoric believe me the capitalists are going to sell you some yeah. anti-capitalist rhetoric um yeah I, I i mean i i just think it's it's probably not one of the, one of the the most interesting things i ever heard howard zinn say on like a recording of a lecture he gave or something like that which is that is that like these these and and he was a marxist remember so he's all structure very little agency but like that these forces can operate without anyone actually pulling the levers right there doesn't have to be a malevolent intentionality um you know in order to uh uh in order to oppress the 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 well almost everybody the 99 percent, right like um so the idea that you know bob Iger is sitting in his uh you know i don't know sitting in his gilded office somewhere in burbank and like saying yes let's keep them all in keep the people all in their place um like that's 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 not going on but i'm talking about the function that these things play uh the function that these things play in the culture and that like if you were to go if you were to sample just a random you know three or four plays non-broadway plays um right because broadway is mostly a tourist thing uh anyway and so it's it's there to i don't know make people feel that's the size of population well yeah to to take 120 dollars for people and make them think that they've seen something done that that the act of forking over two bills you know for a dinner and a show is laudable somehow the the (laughs) i I would read it more kindly fire fire (laughs) to create a sense of occasion to make them feel like the trip that they've gone on is special is like a main purpose of a Broadway show, I think, right? Even more so than to, as a theatrical act of performance. Like, I I would say that relative to other kinds of theater, Broadway shows are less communal because so many of the people watching them are visitors. Right. And and so there's not really a community uh, of people who are coming to see the show. It's like people from far away, and you're sort of giving them something that they can take home with them. Sure. Is kind of the idea. But so if you were to go to sort of smaller theaters, theaters around the country where, you know, um, where most of the the actual. Well, most of the bad theater happens. Well, yeah. I mean, but but, I mean, most of the good (laughs) theater. Most of the theater in general happens. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's where most of the. Where most of the theater in general happens is where most of the bad theater happens because. You know, 95% of everything in art is bad. And that's not, that's, that's as it should be, right? Like, uh, you gotta, you people, the fact that it's bad is not a a license for people to stop creating. You gotta keep trying. Um, the, um, 
Yeah, you you would find on average, I'll bet, just with a random sampling uh, dramaturgy that's a lot more inventive, uh, that's a lot more um, path breaking, you know, than than what you would find in a random sampling of five movies, say, like with direct address to the audience, with things like uh, these days, like projections are very hot. So with you know things like like uh, uh, projections and sort of a use of of place with like I don't know actors freezing, like starting and stopping time you know in a way that's that's a lot less common in in uh mainstream film so to get back to your question mark uh i would say that i would say that um deadpool is the more authentic one and and i i would encourage you uh to check out if you haven't heard or seen these uh check out the hostess twinkie ads from way back in the day well, we might link one in the show notes. There, there's some great Hostess Twinkie ads that appeared in Marvel Comics, and I think also in DC Comics from time to time, for Twinkies, for fruit pies, for other sorts of snack cakes, where the heroes and villains of either the comic you were reading or other comics that were similar to it would be fighting over something, and the thing that they were fighting over would end up being like a Twinkie. Or like Twinkies would save the oh day God. or something like that. And it would always That's end hilarious. with a panel of the hero speaking directly to the camera, right? Like talking out of the panel to the reader about how great Twinkies are. While the villain is like, oh, no, I lost. <laughs> darn you, Twinkies. Right? Like, um, <laughs> darn you. Darn you to heck. Yeah. And I would say that, like, there is an old idea about comics that I don't think it's necessarily true about comics anymore. I, I certainly comics are a more uh, kind of a multi-focused kind of diverse sort of art form now than they used to be because back then it was much more of a hustle in it. And you, you talked about how Matt, Matt talked a little bit about the anesthetizing effect of mass media. And I kind of feel like that's also a product of the mass media as like a habit rather than as an individual product. The idea being that we're assuming that everybody is watching a lot of TV and watching a lot of movies. And so they all take on this kind of pervasive role in that person's life. But if you're only trying to sell one comic, right, if you're only trying to sell one show, then you're not necessarily trying to only offer to trying to offer kind of like a lifestyle necessarily. Right. You might be hustling for something else. Um, And, I think what the Stanley's like Marvel method, uh, as you might describe it, was something like like try to figure out what people want, put it in a box, uh, give it to them a bunch of times, figure out what works, and go with that. And that's why, and when we talked about a little bit of this in our Affinity War podcasts, where like they were throwing a lot of ideas at walls, and they and the reason that the things that they came up with are both silly and and resonant is because of of trial and error. And in that sense, like Captain America isn't really there to anesthetize you he is there to kind of like both get your attention and and sort of access some sort of need that you have that maybe you don't need and i think it's also interesting to consider that in this model what superheroes are are they are characters created by adults for children to intermediate the relationship between adults and children and a lot of the time they are children or teenagers, or like youths who've transformed, like Captain Marvel in the sort of Fawcett Comics DC realm, Billy Batson, Shazam, They're, you know, all those sort of plucky ch- child and teenage heroes. A lot of the time, it's like an adult creating an idea of a child to show to a child, to kind of like talk to the child. And in that sense, the dramaturgy of it isn't as kind of slavishly continental realist. 
And, you know, the GI Joe will talk directly to the TV and tell you to stay in school and not do drugs and like the power of sharing. Right. And, and in that sense, there's also this educate this educational component of entertainment that comes out of entertainment for children is, I think, very based in the idea that a superhero is something of a sort of uh, uh, a, a, a truth. Very, very, very slant. You know, like an adult trying to talk to kids and come up with something super crazy so that the kid doesn't know that they're talking to an adult uh, and, and like fantastical and something that appeals to them. And in that sense, Deadpool, I feel like feels more like an old kind, old timey superhero, like an old timey superhero, like 40s, 50s, 60s, because he's created by, you know, the current incarnation of Deadpool. Yes, he's the product of a lot of good writers. But I think it's pretty much said that Ryan Reynolds is like creating this character out of his love for Deadpool and is something of an auteur for these projects, even though he's basing it off of the work of other people. Like Ryan Reynolds has created this this particular incarnation of Deadpool as a sort of intermediation for his own artistic voice, like towards a lot of other people. And in that sense, the dramaturgy of it is very different than him trying to create like a realistic psychodrama about a person that might like give you some catharsis or show you something about the world. It's it's really like a like like the comic artist is wearing the costume, you know, that the superhero is wearing to a degree. I always say in a way. I always even say that like that's an that's some of that's an aspect of the performativity and dramaturgy that is happening in superhero stories. And the farther you get away from that, you farther away you get from the idea that that uh, comics are start out as um, stories by adults for children. And uh, and yeah, and then you get to the point where sometimes comics are stories by adults for adults, you know, and that's fine. And that works well. And, you know, manga kind of goes more in that direction more often. But when you get away from this idea that, like, uh, it's stories by adults for another group of people and, and we're making it crazy in order to kind of intermediate the, the message, the more you try to treat superheroes as if they are kind of real people and we're looking through a fourth wall at their lives, uh, I just kind of feel like it loses a lot of the the that's when you start asking questions like, why can they fly? You know, like, like, why does none of what they do make sense? Mm. Right? Like, why, why can they shoot lasers? Why do we even watch superheroes? They're nothing like real people, right? Like, why would we even care? Because we don't, if we see them, as, if there's a fourth wall around the superhero, then we're losing the performativity of the creation of the superhero by the artist as, as a participant in the experience. And I think that the Twinkie ads are a great example of yeah. that. Yeah. yeah you yeah, know, yeah. Um, so anyway, I, that, that's sorry. I went on for so long on that one. No, this is, this is great. This yeah. is great. This really helps reframe. Um, I'll, I'll, actually a lot of my thinking about superhero movies in particular, uh, the Marvel stuff, but let me actually, uh, backtrack a little bit of what I was saying earlier about throwing out Captain America, or at least the most recent Marvel cinematic universe, the incarnation of Captain America as this sort of, uh, uh, opposite example of Deadpool, and that Deadpool is uh, very, very meta, um, and Captain America is something more, more straightforward. In fact, and like, and, and not just Captain America, but the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe does a pretty fair amount of uh, uh, some. It's not entirely devoid of fourth wall breaking, and it's also not entirely devoid of this, um, you know, uh, notion of adults speaking to children through intermediaries. I'm, there are probably a ton of examples, but since we were ta already talking about Captain America, let me just go ahead and remind you of his appearances in Spider-Man Homecoming, right, where, like, <laughs> the kids are assembled in the gym. Um, for well, an, that's assemb the movie an where assembly, he did it in. It was yeah, movie. yeah, 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 and then, then they put and they put on like, okay, kids are gonna watch a video with Captain America, and he comes on and he tells the kids like, basically, stay in school, you know, work out a gym, and and so and so on and so forth. And that I feel like was uh, was was very much a, a fourth wall breaking exercise. If we want to find the true antidote to Deadpool, 
um, we might be better served by something like uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. I was actually going to about to say the X Men movies, but um, those have, uh, especially with the, the last installment, Logan uh, has quite a lot of fourth wall breaking, you know, with the with the X Men comic books uh, and and so on. But um, yeah, the Christopher Nolan movies are are the, a better polar opposite. You know, it's a great a great dramaturgical moment to examine in superheroes in this context. By the way, love it, loving, absolutely loving the little raspberry jam on the plate here with with this little crumpet, whatever it is. Oh, it's thank delicious. you. I got I got it at the farmers market. Yeah, definitely. Um, is uh, look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman, right? Because the the construction there is that the bystanders on the street are the audience and Superman going to sort of catch the helicopter or, you know, fight a grizzly bear. I guess he's not fighting a grizzly bear in the middle of the city. Well, maybe they got out of the zoo and he needs to get put back in the zoo. Like Superman punching Metallo on the top of the Daily Planet building has a fourth wall around it that is kind of provided by Superman, I might even say, that, like, ideally, in a Superman comic, Superman prevents any collateral damage to happen to any of the bystanders, so the bystanders get to watch Superman as as people who are not participating in what's happening. And, and of course, this is something that Zack Snyder famously rejects, this idea that, like, bystanders watching Superman would be like, wow, look, it's Superman, and, and, and are excited to see him as opposed to, like, Oh, no, I'm dead because a big piece of rock fell on my face. Um, and, no, I just lost my mom, even though Superman is fighting General Zod. But the, the, just the idea that, like, that the, the comic books are showing you the reactions of people looking at the superheroes in order to cue you in and, and clue you in. It's the same thing you were talking about with, with John Hollander, I guess, right? It's like uh, – uh, oh, actually, that was last week. Um that, that's that's a deep cut. We won't we won't go into that one. But uh, that, that you're we're talking about this idea that like um, the the comic is telling you how to feel about the drawing in the comic through the mouths of people who are in the comic acting as an audience. And so yeah, because that sense, that's that's because yeah. they don't have a soundtrack, right? That's because when yeah. when uh, you know I don't know when uh, a super spoiler alert for uh, for Avengers when uh, uh, Thor and Iron Man start making out the uh, the sexy music on the soundtrack, you know, cues you in to no. I was actually going to give an example from Avengers: Infinity War, and then I realized probably shouldn't shouldn't spoil a crucial plot point. But there there are sad things that happen, and one in particular is accompanied by the most maudlin uh, most maudlin music and it's it's uh it's doing the same thing that pete is describing the spectators doing in the comics it's interesting to consider the role of the crowd as it changes through history uh you know obviously in the beginning of theater the the chorus right is an emergence from the idea of like the moral authority of the group the elders you know, in the very, very beginning, it's all the people marching with the penis statue through the town square and participating in the ritual. And it blurs the distinction between the audience and the performer more than anything. But penis statue. Oh, sorry. It's a phallus, not a penis. There's a difference. We've talked about it. No, I'm I'm just talking about was it Comos. Right, which is that what it's called? Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it was the it was the um, uh, it was the aim of of Dionysian patriarchy to replace the the penis statue with the phallus statue. 
<laughs> so Comus is the Greek god, what a revelry. And there was a particular sort of performance associated with Comus, uh, which is uh, which involved carrying a phallus through the streets or something ah, along those okay. lines. All right. And they, they, they'd all they'd all get they'd all get drunk and end up in comas. Am I right? Oh. <laughs> ah. But but the point is that in ancient Greek, uh, you know, tragedy and comedy, there's a group of people on stage who serve as audience surrogates and comment on what's happening, and particularly on the moral implications of what's happening. And then this flows through classical theater, you know, medieval theater, Renaissance theater, where there's lots of like epilogues and prologues and speeches in the middle of it where some person or another comes forward who maybe isn't the main protagonist of the play or maybe they are but like speaks with the authority of like the interpretation of the audience who is sort of the bystander and we get even up to the point with with hamlet where it's like horatio is kind of the audience surrogate observer but his role is like very very minimal at the very end uh but but then when you get to you know the kind of continental realism that we're talking about that character kind of disappears uh, and there stops being bystanders. And what you start having is plays with pretty small casts. You know, there, there's uh, there's not really anybody in Streetcar Named Desire who serves as an audience surrogate who's like, man, these people really should have had air conditioning and everything would have been better. Right. Like as a moral of the story, wash your hands. You know, there's nothing like that in Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, um, I mean, there is in Glass Menagerie. But like um, uh, but once you get to superhero stories and once you get into movies, that have big crowd scenes, you have tons of bystanders that are standing on the, in the screen. They're in the mise-en-scene watching it happen. Like, you've got a hundred people that are all watching Christopher Reeve, you know, grab Gene Hackman by the lapels and carry him on a wire out of a window. And those bystanders have come back because in fourth wall, in fourth world drama, I wouldn't, ne- in drama behind the fourth wall, I wouldn't necess- necessarily think that they should be there. Because, again, if the point of fourth wall is to show what people are acting like when no one is watching them, having a bunch of people watch them defeats the entire purpose. Um, and so the huh. bystander in the superhero movie is, is, is sort of by, by, their, by their presence breaking the fourth wall. Uh, well, also by being at risk, by, by showing the bystander being at risk related to the action that's happening, you're implying that the audience is also at risk. And what this reminds me of is, is – uh, uh, like matinee, like the the um, that great John Goodman movie matinee about the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Uh, which is, is captures that very specific moment uh, in cinema where people would go to like 3D movies where the seat would like jump and people would spray water on you, which is still something that happens sometimes. But the idea that the audience kind of is experiencing the things that are happening in the movie in a in a sort of sensory way because people are like messing with you in your chair, you know, that also breaks the fourth wall. That puts the fourth wall behind you. Um, yeah, it's, and it's so, why I yeah. don't go. It's why I don't go to movie theaters with teenagers. It's because why? Because you don't want to be in. in I, yeah, the- I don't. I don't want to be sprinkled by some. So I don't want some stupid kids <laughs> prank. You know what I mean? I don't want to be like. I don't want. I don't want someone to throw popcorn at at stuff. You know, I take their phones and I throw them into the trash can and I say, "There, there. Where's your god now?" <laughs> it's hey, kind of so- it's kind of ridiculous to maintain the fourth wall in surround sound. Is what I'm saying. But, but let me take a let me take a little tangent because we've brought up um, going to the movies and the role of the audience and uh, and Matt you brought up uh, teenagers in the audience. Um, I want to reference uh, one of the a very recent episode of This American Life, uh, where high school teenagers go on a school field trip to see Schindler's List, but they weren't told that they were going to go see Schindler's List. And long story short, 
they get kicked out of the movie theater because they're being teenagers reacting to um, uh, to Schindler's List. Uh, and it's uh, definitely relevant that they are black and Hispanic teenagers reacting uh, to Schindler's List. And uh, one of the highlight reactions of the kids was, um, I don't know if you remember, well, spoilers for Schindler's List. Um, there's a scene <laughs> where a Nazi Sorry, guns. we know guns, how it ends. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a scene where a Nazi officer guns down a concentration camp prisoner, a Jew, in cold blood, just bam. Uh, and uh, one of the kids' reaction was, damn, that was cold, <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious on one hand, but totally inappropriate for the context. Um, it, it, it's it, How does that fit into this rubric that we're building here where uh, the audience and just the pres- mere presence of an audience kind of breaks down See, those, any notion of a fourth wall. Those kids would have been excellent theater goers in ancient Greece, you know? <laughs> or like any time up to like 1850 yeah, in exactly. most places, right? Yeah, yeah. Again, or like 19... Eurocentric view here. Yeah, or in exactly. any place okay. other than Europe, yeah. Right, exactly. Or 1920 in the United States. But yeah, same diff, right? Like the... Uh, um, yeah, they would have been, it, it, that would have been it. I mean, like, I, I have a lot of reactions to that. One is that, like, the idea that, uh, I mean, the kid was not wrong, you know? Yes. yes. <laughs> like, that, that indeed was cold. And right. it, it's, I mean, <laughs> And it's it's sort of a strategy, uh, sort of a tragedy um, that you know uh, kids that these kids today, right? Like um, have actually have a vocabulary, have a uh, everyday, day to day vocabulary, uh, where in natural language they can express um a an appropriate reaction to the enormity of historical evil that is uh you know the nazi death machine right like the the idea that that can be sort of reduced to that's cold and that like kind of makes sense to it that kind of makes sense of it to a kid today like it it is something that's in their own experience uh that is in fact cold and uh and horrible but um but you know, I don't know. I be, beyond that, like I, I to me a little bit. Those kids, those kids are my heroes. And I say this not to trivialize anything about the film Schindler's List or the historical evil that it depicts, right? Like uh, the the you know the idea that there has to be this kind of extra, that there's only one kind of extraordinarily buttoned up way of preserving the the seriousness of you know works of art, right? Is sort of this this 19th century idea and i i wonder if it isn't in some way connected to industrialization right mm. and to like class anxiety somehow so actually sort of kicking kicking kids out of schindler's list for being too raucous is a totally uh a totally foreseeable middle class response you know to uh uh, to the kind of the the raucousness of kids who are not indoctrinated into to middle class high you know middle brow seriousness i don't yeah. know you're basically hitting it all right on the head uh and and what the episode uh is trying to telegraph about this particular in- incident um i'm not gonna reveal any more of it but i will just say go listen to it it's 45 minutes it's well worth your time and mark mark will we believe what happens next <laughs> uh yeah. Yeah, you will. Way, you will. You yeah. will. It's you will worth, believe what worth, happens next. It's worth noting that Schindler's List is a particularly interesting movie in this regard. It's a movie I refuse to rank 
among movies because I feel like as a I, we've been using the word dramaturgical a lot. And I'm going to even say I don't think the dramaturgy of Schindler's List is such that uh, it is a movie to be ranked uh, amongst other movies, which where there's so often this sort of tacit idea that every movie you're watching is trying to be better than all the other movies that you're watching. And I feel like the that Schindler's List carries with it kind of an implicit idea that there was not much live footage of this stuff actually happening. And so you're supposed to watch Schindler's List with a certain amount of reverence because it's as close as you're able to get to a live depiction of this horrible inhumanity. So th- this I is, this is th- yeah, this is really interesting. So like Jean-Luc Godard, when he refused a Lifetime Achievement Academy Award, uh, famously said it was because Steven Spielberg was allowed to rebuild Auschwitz, right? And uh, he would not have any part of this academy or this kind of Los Angeles-based film film industry that that was doing this. So it was not an un- it's not an uncontroversial thing. But I think what you're getting at is like the the role of, of theater as ritual, right? Mm-hmm. And like the the uh the high school kids thought they were at a movie and didn't realize that they were at a ceremony you know yeah and that's yeah. and that's uh and ceremonies are participatory yes right? yeah, yeah but there there are in ceremonies there are prescribed ways of yes. of participating right like there is a very narrow domain of of acceptable responses and you have to be sort of indoctrinated you have to be sort of religiously educated if you're going to participate in a ceremony and i think that like this this example should be should be uncontroversial and i'm i'm totally with you not ranking it as you know as a quote unquote movie because it's playing a different game than a than a quote "Quote unquote" movie um, is playing. It's trying to operate. It's it's aimed at a, a completely different set of objectives. That said, I also whenever you know whenever reverence and sanctimony comes up, it's something that I personally and this may be just a character flaw of my own, but like I have an innate aversion to because I you know I have so many experiences in my life of people using reverence, sanctimony, and ceremony to. Um, to sort of extort you emotionally, you know? Yeah. And, and though I don't think, I, I think Schindler's list is not that right. No. Like, but it, it is something that it is something that I think you got to kind of be vigilant for, um, you know, when people say something is too, too serious to be laughed at or to, you know, or that there, there is only a, a kind of narrow band of acceptable responses to something. You, you know, what movie does that that comes to mind is, well, the first movie that comes to mind that does that is platoon. Which huh. is just like full on emotional extortion, yeah, <laughs> right? Because it's like it's like a real drama of real Vietnam that uh, is like dominated by a dramatic theatrical gesture. <laughs> like it has like a it has like a Brechtian justice to it, but at the same time, it's and I also think that a lot of Vietnam movies are like this. And Full Metal Jacket comes to mind. I, at first, I thought of Platoon as kind of a joke because it's Charlie Sheen in the in, in Vietnam, <laughs> uh, but then I remembered he has a father. And then, so I remember, like, Apocalypse Now, right? Like, Apop- Apocalypse Now is kind of extortive in this way that Matt is describing, I think, in that it has this tone about it that is incredibly serious, to even to the point of almost being suffocating, and that it seems to demand a very specific sort of regard. I mean, again, he did the same thing. Francis Ford Coppola did a similar thing to Shakespeare in, in uh, Schindler's List in that he, like, went to the Southeast Asia and filmed it there, right? Like in a typhoon 
and, and all that other nonsense, right? That like you mean Spielberg and Schindler's List. I would love to oh, see William Shakespeare. Shakespeare. <laughs> sorry. So so sort of like sort of like when Judd Apatow directed Schindler's List. No, uh, and, <laughs> like, like, well, so, but think about all of the different movies that you've ever seen about Vietnam. Uh, you know, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now. You know, uh, Born on the Fourth of July. Uh, like the, well, the Deer Hunter, right? Like. Uh, they, they all have uh, and Rambo too, right? Like, like they all want you to have a very specific opinion about Vietnam. It is, it is a very expository historical event in which everybody has like a, has an argument about it, uh, and and it is like a, and everybody has a, an argument about it that is both artistic and political in equal measure all the time. Uh, whereas, like when you see World War II movies, there are some World War II movies that are like fun. And the real, yeah, II, yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like some World War II movies are like serious, and some World War II movies are like, well, the one, some of them are Valkyrie with Tom Cruise as a good Nazi, right? Like, like they have. A, there's a wide variety of cinematic interpretation, uh, but not just in terms of what they have to say, but in terms of the like expectations of the emotional life of the audience participating in it. But like, and like the idea that like you don't get to participate in it, uh, I guess is, guess is what we're saying, right? Is that like be, well, Apocalypse Now takes the cameras to these sorts of situations and tries to create a mise en scene that is so, somewhat similar to the inhumanity that it is talking about, which is of course from literature even more than it is from reality. But like because it's a movie and it's because it's a serious movie that you're not supposed to talk back to, uh, you you don't get a say and you don't get to interact. You don't get to like be you don't get to have a voice alongside you know, Martin Sheen's audience surrogate as he experiences all these things. And in that sense, it kind of is, is taking away your emotional uh, your emotional sense of what's happening. Whereas like RoboCop <laughs> like, is, is also a movie about inhumanity and also a movie in which an audience surrogate is exploited to a whole bunch of craziness that is about real life and also about literature. But the tone of it does not kind of exclude the audience because it breaks the fourth wall. Uh, and in doing that, there is, I think, less emotional blackmail that is happening. Remind now, us I'm, how it breaks the fourth wall for those who haven't seen RoboCop in a while. So, th- so throughout RoboCop, uh, there is a television show that is on, right? Uh, well, there's a bunch of ways that RoboCop breaks the fourth wall. The first way it breaks the fourth wall is that it shows the events that are happening in real life as a video feed on the visor of the dead cop who has been turned into a cyborg. So, like, RoboCop has the sort of uh, robot cam that becomes so popular where it's like you get the little, like, feed of, like, beep, 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 we're, we're in, like, uh, you know, it's, it's Detroit. You know, this is the year. This is the time. Target identified. Target identified. The Terminator does this, too. Yeah, yeah. Terminator and, and, and by showing you the visor of the robot, it kind of, like, puts the audience in the point of view of the character, which is not something you can do if you're watching events from a sort of level of separation that's created by a fourth wall, it kind of invites you to engage with the material in a different sort of dramaturgical way. It's very basic, but in, in RoboCop, it gets more complex because the camera flips back and forth. Sometimes you're watching the events as they unfold in the time frame of the movie from the perspective of RoboCop. Sometimes you're watching past events that get replayed in RoboCop's face from his life that are being sort of remembered through malfunction. And so like RoboCop is watching a movie of his own life off and on uh, his life before becoming RoboCop. And and he has reactions to that. And you're kind of invited to have reactions to that. And you watch RoboCop kind of like twist and, and convulse and have pain in engaging with that. And, and sort of like you're, you're sort of invited through this sort of 
degree of engagement to like share his opinion of it. But also they show other characters in RoboCop watching television a lot. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, when yeah. they and they watch TV shows, they watch each other on video calls. I'm sure Apocalypse Now does this to an extent, too. And and the way that they use his music, I shouldn't bring up Apocalypse Now as like the worst of the kind of like confined behind the fourth wall historical dramas. Platoon is much worse. But um, and not that they're and they're both good. I don't want to say well, that's bad. Uh, Apocalypse you know Now has that has that really interesting piece where I believe it's Kilgore, um, mm-hmm. the Robert Duvall character, adds his own soundtrack. Yes. To yes, the yes. movie that they're creating. I would qualify that as a form of breaking the fourth wall. I might be bending the term to the point of breaking, but it's like metatextual in the sense that yeah. we're describing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like uh, yeah, like you're you're doing a real Celine Dion there and doing yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, leaning leaning back, you know, as as our teacher John Hollander used to say. I, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a thing that that it might be good to to close on, right? Like we're we're talking about different things, you know. Do we even define the fourth wall? Like the fourth wall is the imaginary invisible wall at the edge of the stage that separates the stage from the audience. Audience, right, and or so in our case, the real walls that are separating us as we eat brunch with each other and have this conversation that nobody is listening to. Right, exactly. <laughs> that uh, that um, you know, so the, really breaking the fourth wall is an actor sort of turning out to the audience and addressing them, or sort of acknowledging the audience, qua audience, uh, like at, at a theatrical event. You know, um, we're we're using it in a different way, as far as, as like anything that kind of destroys the continuity of the illusion of that the that the work of art that the the dramatic work is a real thing is actually right is actually taking place and we're actually i mean so so there's all kinds of um uh, this uh, this is sometimes called alienation, right? Like that that you are sort of alienated from the experience. You see the constructedness of the experience. You become aware that uh, you know you you are made aware, um, and your awareness is incorporated into the work that that what you're seeing was was um, put together put together by people, much like this podcast. Wait, what? <laughs> Which we are pre-taping a couple weeks before Deadpool comes out uh, because we won't be able to see Deadpool in time to uh, do a uh, to do a show on it, right? That that uh, much much like that, you know. Um, I am destroying the illusion. You can see, Pete, the 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 cups and saucers are evaporating in your hands. Wait, what? We, Mark, the food is turning to ashes in your mouth. Try Twinkies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know and uh yeah and and that it was actually all an elaborate artifice all along cue the theme music thank you very much for listening to this overthinking it podcast thank you very much pete and mark for podcasting with me wherever you are it is always a pleasure to do with you the overthinking it podcast will return until then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it it probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. We had this whole conversation about the fourth wall and did not invoke Bertolt Brecht. I'm really ashamed of us, you guys. Man, drop the ball. Part four, the after show. Pete grapples with existential questions and pleads with the audience. No, I talked about him in terms of Platoon. Right, audience? You heard me talked about how Platoon has Brechtian gesture in it, right, audience? When, like, you heard the, everything that I was saying 
it's it's really important to me, audience, to feel understood. And that's one of the motivators as to why all of us do this thing. And 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 us calling out to you guys and not being able to hear back, it sometimes creates this this paradox of we create the illusion for ourselves that we're getting the need of being listened to satisfied. But are you even listening to us? I call this out into all of you looking out into those dark seats in that audience. You know, the lights are so strong in my eyes that I can't see whether you're even there. And I got to take it on faith that you are. I mean, right, Mark? Right. We got to take it on faith that they're out there listening because because otherwise, you know, if we drop the ball, then then they're not going to have anything to listen to. And then that wouldn't be right. Audience. The fire exits are here. here. <laughs> In the event of an emergency, 